This is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois, hosted by Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thank you, Max, and welcome back to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Today, we are launching a series of episodes focusing on the work that the ACLU is doing in response to the coronavirus pandemic. As of this recording, the United States is closing in on 100,000 deaths linked to COVID-19. Since March, our staff, like many of you, has been working from home, but our work has not stopped. In fact, we have added new work onto the already full agenda that we had been addressing before the COVID-19 crisis was upon us. We want to look at that work and how it impacts civil liberties across the state of Illinois. And to do that, we are pleased to be joined for this conversation by the Executive Director of the ACLU of Illinois, Colleen Connell. Colleen, welcome back to Talking Liberties. Thanks, Ed. So let me start with sort of a big picture question. In the midst of a pandemic such as this, how has the work of the ACLU changed? It's gotten much more urgent, uh, Ed, and it's gotten urgent on top of an already very busy um, uh, docket of activity on our uh, advocacy side, on our litigation side, and quite frankly, on our our communications and engagement um, side as, um, you know, so many of the civil liberties issues that are always, um, you know, in play really seem to become more important and more urgent during, during this period of time. Do you think that the, for example, do you think that, that like nearly every area of work is somehow affected by the pandemic? Uh, yes, absolutely. And what we are seeing, as has been widely reported, is that the uh, racial and economic um, challenges in this country have only become um, more pressing. But, but let me go back to your question about every area of civil liberties and um, identify a few areas in which um, the ACLU's work has intensified. I'm, I'm going to start with our work um, to reduce the number of people um, incarcerated and to actually uh, at, make sure that the conditions in which people are being held, whether they're being held in jails, whether they're being held in juvenile facilities, whether they're being held in prisons or in immigration detention facilities, that the conditions of confinement um, are, are constitutional, that, that we do not lock people up in cages under uh, inhumane, filthy, uh, infectious um, conditions. And so um, much of the work um, of uh, many of our staff has been to uh, really make sure that the conditions in um, juvenile facilities and in uh, the Department of Corrections um, really take into account um, the um, very infectious nature of COVID and that we change the way um, people are held to make sure that um, you know the risk of infection is reduced. Um, what this means in many cases is actually um, trying to rapidly uh, increase the number of people who can safely be released. Um, and one of the things that, one of the first things that our correction and reform project did, um, even before the governor, um, uh, you know, um, issued the stay at home orders, uh, was to be 
begin working using our consent decree, um, which is a federal court order, um, you know, um, directing state governmental officials to act in a certain way. Um, we tried to um, successfully use that um, consent decree uh, to encourage the um, Department of Corrections to expedite the release of people who are um, what we call medically fragile, higher risk um, for the infection, and to also expedite the release of people who were already you know, in the pipeline for release. Uh, so for example, they were within you know, weeks or months of having served their sentence or having become eligible for release under, under a variety of circumstances. So that's just one area. Uh, another area that has not just um, um, intensified, but intensified in just a very profound way is our work on behalf of, of immigrants. And we have filed um, it, at this point um, two new lawsuits um, against county jails um, that are um, under contract with the Federal Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, Agency um, to hold um, immigrants, uh, you know, who are, um, you know, really on a, on a deportation list. And we successfully secured the release at this point of um, three of our clients. Um, two were being held in the McHenry County Jail, one was being held in the Kankakee County Jail. All three of those individuals um, were, were medically fragile and, um, you know, a couple of them were stuck in what I'm going to just call, um, you know, no man's land um, because uh, in one case um, the country to which um, ICE was seeking to deport him uh, actually was th there were no flights the country was not uh, uh, basically open for um, airport air transport um, from this country uh, so those are just a you know a couple of things that we've been doing in the uh, the detention um, arena you know other areas have included our efforts to really protect um, the public health and to protect um, people's um, medical privacy. We've been very active in efforts to resist uh, unprecedented attempts by law enforcement and other first responders to force um, county health departments to uh, release the personal health information, including the names and addresses of people who test positive for the COVID virus. And the reason that this is so harmful is that obviously, you know, medical privacy is just a key component of um, what people rely on in order to, to feel comfortable uh, going and seeking necessary medical care. And our concern is that if this information is released to people who, um, uh, you know, to, to, to law enforcement, uh, many people will be chilled in their efforts to, uh, to seek testing and to, and to seek care for COVID. So that's an interesting point. I wonder if you can expand on that. The other thing that's really important to emphasize here is that release of this information is contrary to uh, the public health advice that the uh, Illinois Department of, of Public Health, the Federal Centers for Disease Control, and many county health departments um, have, have issued because they basically say it is of little to no value to release this information um, um, in terms of an effort to stem the, the rate of uh, infection for COVID. And that's because of the fact that I'm sure that um, 
you know, so many of our, our audience is already familiar with. Uh, you know, um, many people um, are, are asymptomatic and don't know they're, um, you know, infected with the COVID virus and thus, you know, aren't tested. Uh, and increasingly, the evidence shows that people shed the most virus um, or viral load in the four or five days before they become symptomatic and actually go in to be tested and treated uh, for the COVID virus. So the net result of releasing uh, uh, this information, this private health information, is to create essentially a false sense of security for first responders who should, consistent with public health advice, um, treat every member of the public with whom they come in contact uh, uh, with concern about, uh, you know, that they could possibly be infected with the virus. And this is where I wanted to just sort of go back and talk about how our work in, uh, in the area of corrections, in the area of, um, you know, public health information intersects with our policing work. Uh, one of the first things the ACLU did uh, prophylactically was, uh, um, you know, work with our police practices project and again, um, public health officials to issue, um, I think, some really important um, guidelines uh, to law enforcement about how to protect themselves and the public um, during this period of time. And one of the first things we urged um, law enforcement to do, again, is treat every member of the public um, as potentially infectious and to reduce the number of, um, you know, stops and searches um, that law enforcement was being, uh, was conducting um, in an effort to protect um, not just the public, but also those first responders and to limit um, the use of the arrest power to those situations in which um, the person being arrested or, or targeted by law enforcement was acting in a way that presented an imminent threat to the life or safety of another human being. And this is where it sort of comes full circle. One of the reasons that we did that was because of the overcrowding in, for example, Cook County Jail and the way in which that um, those crowded um, those crowded conditions uh, exacerbated the risk of the spread of the virus. And so one of the first things that it was really important to do was to try, you know, really try to safely, safely reduce the number of people being arrested and put in, you know, the county jail or other county, uh, other county jails. Well, let me jump in here. I, I, what I hear a lot of this kind of building around is the notion of public health guiding a lot of this work and a lot of the, the approaches around the advocacy. And I wonder if you could just talk for a moment about the, the role that public health plays in your view and in your mind right now in terms of protecting basic freedoms and basic civil liberties. Yes, uh, that's a really terrific question, Ed. Um, um, the ACLU's advocacy, both here in Illinois and nationwide, has really been focused on um, close attention to the public health experts and the public health guidelines. And the reason for that is, um, I, I'm going to borrow the line of one of my con law professors many years ago, um, is that common sense has a place in constitutional law. And, uh, and uh, you know, we are concerned about public safety, 
um, because obviously it is so vital for all of us and we can see how attention to um, public health advice has really, um, when followed, helped us, you know, both reduce the, the spread of the virus, but also to manage, you know, um, the, the impact, not just on, on you know, uh, the medical um, care system, but also the lives of individuals. So it's, it's important for public safety, but it's also important for constitutional analysis because um, the general rule of thumb here is that obviously, um, you know, government um, cannot restrict protected liberties in the, the Bill of Rights, in the state constitution, in, um, you know, some of the, um, you know, what we call the Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, unless government has, um, in most instances, a compelling governmental, uh, a compelling governmental reason to do so. And so this is where it intersects with um, the scope of power reserved by the 10th Amendment um, of the Constitution, which basically says, you know, that government that is not specific, or that power that is not specifically granted um, to, the federal, um, to the federal government um, is reserved, um, in, in, you, know, for, you know, for the state uh, governments. Um, and, and this is where we basically declare that this is the, the police powers authority of state governments to regulate uh, in furtherance of protecting public health and public safety. But that reservation of power by the Constitution to state governments to regulate in furtherance of public health and safety is not unlimited power. Um, government, you know, again, particularly when it's restricting um, fundamental rights, has to have a compelling good reason to do that. And so one of the things that the ACLU has been doing um, throughout this, this pandemic is testing um, the government's rationale for imposing these restrictions um, in the COVID pandemic against the strength of the government's articulated reasons um, for doing that. And, and we have been really looking for a um, close connection or nexus between the reason that the government has given and, you know, you know, medical evidence that says that, yes, this restriction really does, um, you know, protect people and advance the compelling medical or public health justification um, that's being used for this rationale. The government can limit, for example, large gatherings if those gatherings might be a vector of spread that would affect the whole community. Um, as, as a general matter, yes. Um, but again, I want to, um, you know, uh, caution against, uh, you know, anything that's going to be heard as a green light um, for, you know, an effort um, by the government, which we are not seeing here in Illinois, um, to shut down all, um, all public um, voices all, you know, opposition to, you know, particular governmental policies. So that, that actually raises a question, because I think one of the things that we've seen uh, a lot and, and have gotten a lot of coverage over the last few weeks has been these 
protest of people, you know, uh, calling for, for less restriction, for the, for the economy to open up, I think is the general term. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen those here in Chicago and in Springfield as well, and in other parts of the country. What is the ACLU position with regards to those protests? So our position is, um, is I think, nuanced appropriately given the, the situation. Uh, we think that, um, you know, again, these are, these are classic First Amendment um, principles. Um, uh, you know, the government cannot, you know, prohibit or restrict all speech. Um, there's been no real effort to do so. Um, the government can, you know, consistent with long-established um, uh, First Amendment um, principles, um, impose um, some time, place, and manner restrictions on um, public activities. This is again when you test the, um, you know, the sort of the common sense or the public health justifications for those time, place, and manner restrictions um, against the data. Um, and, you know, so for example, I'm going to go to um, one of the restrictions that has come um, under attack, um, which is, um, you know, social distancing in these protests, you know, a period of six feet. Now that can be justified by the public health data that shows, um, you know, how the virus can be spread um, in, you know, you know, through the air in aerosol fashion. Um, and the, re the requirement that people wear a mask, also supported by the public health data that um, masks worn appropriately um, can and do contribute to reducing the aerosol spread of the virus. But this is where it reinforces, you know, uh, our, or we intersect with the ACLU's, uh, you know, other advocacy. You know, we have consistently urged, and I think law enforcement here in Illinois has, has I think, been thoughtful in many instances about how there are pro protesters who are violating those public health guidelines. And they're basically trying to say to people, um, hey, spread apart a little bit, but they're not arresting people because to arrest people would be, quite frankly, counterproductive because we are putting, you know, law enforcement in close contact with people, which is something that we really want to try to avoid unless there's an imminent threat to another person's life or health. And um, if we arrest people, um, you know, definitionally, you, you're by and large likely transporting them in many instances to a jail or a holding facility, which again, we don't want to do because when we put people in those, you know, um, crowded correctional facilities in which you can't social distance, you're, you're, you're operating at cross purposes. You, you just um, are increasing the risk of the spread of the virus. And that is exactly what law enforcement doesn't want to do. That's exactly what, why we've issued those guidances. And, and so that's how all of these areas really, really intersect. How do you determine, I hear you saying, I, we're not green lighting everything. The masks, social distancing, stay at home orders can all be enforced. How, how do you figure out where the fulcrum here is in terms of how much is too much? When restrictions go too far? H how do you arrive at that judgment? Um, it, it's situational, Ed. 
uh, and you know we basically have to test the law um, in every situation uh, against the factual situation uh, that's unfolding. And except, you know, again, this is where it's, it's situational. Um, you know, there have long been, you know, government has the, the power and, you know, the courts would by and large uphold that power and have, you know, if you had, for example, you know, think of a situation in which uh, a natural disaster or you have a, like a radioactive spill or something like that, you know, if government would say, you know, put the police line up and say, nobody can cross this line because of the extraordinary risk to human safety, that could be upheld in very extreme circumstances. Um, but we don't have that here. And um, nobody in, you know, no governmental official in Illinois, um, you know, that I'm aware of has issued, um, you know, this kind of complete shutdown of protected activity. Um, you know, let me give you another example in, 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 a, in states that I think have not approached um, this situation with the kind of nuanced respect for both um, public safety and civil liberties that I think many of the authorities in Illinois um, have approached it with. So in the state, in some of the states, um, the um, governors have issued orders in which um, they have shut down um, uh, abortion care. Said abortion care is not essential. Those orders have been challenged successfully um, by the ACLU um, as being too restrictive of a fundamental right. Um, you can see, you know, it was sort of like an absolute shutdown of a, of a fundamental right. Um, contrast that to, for example, the care with the, the Pritzker administration, uh, uh, um, you know, issued executive orders in which there was a very comprehensive definition of essential medical care that people, even during the stay-at-home, even during stay-at-home orders, could access, including specifically abortion care, given the time sensitivity and fundamental nature of that of, of that medical care. Um, I want to circle back to one other thing you said, because I think thinking about this balance issue that you're, you're raising here and where the lines are, you, you talked about these efforts on behalf of law enforcement, first responders to get access to this medical information. And, you know, we've seen some litigation around this in, in counties around the state. The argument, as you know, is that first responders don't have enough personal protection equipment and therefore they're trying to protect themselves so they can continue to give service to the community. And I, I, I wonder if you could, could sort of um, not take on that argument, but just address that concern in the context of the public health argument you were making earlier. The concern is real, but the solution is ineffective um, in, in a nutshell. And as we've seen in some of the litigation that I referenced um, about these efforts to compel disclosure, um, many of the county health authorities have said um, the kind of personal protective gear um, that's appropriate is, is available. There, there isn't a shortage, for example, um, um, you know, the, I think there were affidavits in both McHenry and Lake County from public health authorities that showed the availability of personal protective um, equipment. 
But more importantly, um, or as importantly, I should say, this is where, again, the, the public health guidance is more protective in a, in a more effective way of concerns for, um, for first responders. So let me talk about how, what the, the updated public health guidances say. So uh, what the updated public health guidances say is that when a medical or an EMS dispatch system receives a call for, you know, to send help, EMS help, um, to a home or an apartment, um, there are a series of questions that um, public health authorities have adopted and shared with um, first responders that elicit, are aimed to elicit information from the person calling, you know, for EMS help um, in an effort to determine whether this is a situation in which the first responders should use um, the most protective medical um, device, that specific call in which COVID might be present. Um, as opposed to um, wasting, you know, personal protective um, equipment, for example, the N95 mask, you know, if you're being called um, to a situation in which, um, you know, they say, no, this is not a COVID-related call. That's how, how we look at this. You know, you should always use, um, you know, the care and the equipment that's appropriate to the situation um, and not uh, essentially uh, uh, you know, where, because you, you don't need to, um, the N95 mask, mask and the hazmat suits, um, you know, when you're making, making an ordinary call, um, you know, a, a simple, you know, surgical mask um, of the type um, that are not in short supply it, it is appropriate and sufficiently protective. So as we close, let me ask you, Colleen, how do you see the work of the organization continuing in this moment? It, the, even the work outside of, of, of these areas that have arisen, how do you, how do you see the work going forward um, you know, in this time? I think that we have not yet reached the, the pivot point where we can essentially say life is returning to normal um, and um, we no longer have to sort of uh, think about civil liberties in in a public health context. Um, you know, I think going forward, um, once we have reached that pivot point, um, we need to really renew our examination of how the impact of the the pandemic has exacerbated the challenges to civil liberties that we were already facing. And, and really sort of taking a, a, a hard look at um, areas in which we need to increase our advocacy um, to make sure that uh, we don't suffer more erosion of important civil rights and civil liberties. Colleen, thanks so much for joining us today and starting off this series about our work during the pandemic. Thanks so much, Ed. If you're interested in more detail about the ACLU's work in Illinois in response to COVID-19, you can find that on our website at aclu-il.org. If you're interested in seeing what the ACLU is doing across the country in response to the pandemic, go to aclu.org. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever. 
Content Supervisor is Kimberly Koziel. Our Executive Director and our guest today is Colleen Connell. Subscribe to this podcast and rate us. Contact us directly at talkinglibertiesone one word, at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this has been Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. We'll talk to you soon.